You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. If you're a visitor, we're glad that you're with us this morning. And uh, we are going through the Gospel of Mark. We're almost finished. So if you have a Bible, if you have a phone, um, turn to Mark chapter 15. And just an announcement for those of you who don't get our updates. We're having a worship night here tonight at 7 p.m. So if you want to come and sing with us as a congregation and uh, experience that, it's be 7 o'clock right in this room here. So in 1911, there was a famous explorer named Captain Lawrence Oates. And he was part of a small expeditionary team that was setting out to be the first group to make it to the South Pole. And so, you know, this is 1911. There's no Gore-Tex. There's no, like, great equipment. They just hunkered down and hiked their way out to the South Pole, taking 79 days to get there. And on the way, you know, freezing. And there's, you can still see old black and white photos. They're just covered in ice. And when they reached the South Pole, they discovered a tent that was pitched there by a Norwegian team that had got there some 35 days before they had got there. So the Norwegians were faster, okay, than the British. And the flag had been staked in the ground. And so the the crew kind of was like super discouraged and... Um, literally halfway frozen to death, and they started this 79-day journey back. And within like three days, one of them passed away, froze to death on the way. And Captain Lawrence Oates was also really starting to slow down. His feet and his toes were starting to be frostbitten, And he was just slowly trudging along. And the other three guys that were still alive were having to slow down because of Captain Oates. And so the story goes, and it was recorded in the diaries of those men who survived, the story goes that Captain Oates made a decision to sacrifice himself so that the others would at least have a chance of surviving. And so one of the nights, he opened the tent and said this line, he said, I'm just going outside, and I may be some time. And he walked off into the darkness, never to be seen again. His body was never found, and he gave himself as a sacrifice, hoping to give the, the three remaining explorers a chance to get to safety and back to, you know, the shelter from the winter. And the story of Captain Oates was told throughout Britain, and it became famous. And this line has been memorialized and has been put on statues and has been put in different places. And it was actually used, the story was told to kind of bolster and, and make bold the soldiers in World War I who were fighting in the trenches. They kind of rallied around this line that Oates said on his way out of the tent And the reason was because this image of self-sacrifice was and still is inspiring for people. 
Maybe, maybe not for us to do it, but when we hear of others doing it, it inspires us and, it, and it's a story to be told and one that we want to kind of latch onto and it gives us hope and it even gives us energy at times. And that's why even here in Mark chapter 15, as we're slowly working our way through the crucifixion, this idea of the exchange of Jesus sacrificing himself for us on the cross is something, obviously, that captivates us as Christians, but it even captivates the world. The world knows about it and is intrigued by it, though they don't understand it necessarily or don't even like some of the ideas behind it. But Mark 15 records for us this great exchange. And the reason why there's an exchange is because sin has come into the world. Sin has broken our world, and it's fractured it in so many ways. It's fractured our own personal lives. It's fractured our society and even our world as a whole. Now, when we talk to others around us, or maybe even some in the room here, the idea of sin is not like one that we love to talk about. It's not even one that we love to dwell on. It's, it's even one that sometimes people try to throw it out. But honestly, the world even recognizes that there is something that is not working. I, I can't tell you how many times I, in the last two years, and probably you as well, have talked to neighbors or people in different places who aren't Christians, who don't even have the language to put it into words, but they know that somehow this world is broken. The pandemic, as it kind of went around the world and caused all the, the death and the destruction from, you know, the effects to the economy and to our personal lives. Man, people just wrestling with seeing that. And in the, the division and the, the anger that it brought into our society and into the relationships that we have with maybe coworkers or even right into our homes, people just like confused by that. And just like shaking their heads at different points in this season saying, man, something is not right here. And that's like non-Christian people who don't necessarily have language for sin or maybe even don't want to describe it in that way. But something is not right. But for those of us who are Christians, we know from Scripture that there is definitely something not right. And that, that brokenness, that not rightness, however you want to frame it, is sin itself. In Genesis, God creates mankind. He starts by creating Adam and Eve, and they are in perfect relationship. They are at peace with God. They are in what, what the Old Testament calls shalom. They are in relationship with God. And Adam and Eve choose something other than that relationship with God. And that moment brings into the world sin and brokenness. The relationship between God and man is no longer the peace and shalom that it was. And from then on, the ripple effects of that sin are just continually felt. And so if you have a small view of that brokenness or a small view of sin, when we come to the text here in Mark 15 and when we ponder and think about the cross, it really gets confusing in the life or in the world around us. Now, when it comes to the Bible, and I was just saying this, Sin is throughout. Like, you just read the narrative. And that's all I do is challenge you to read the narrative, read the stories, and you start seeing some families that are messed up. 
you're like, man, my family could actually fit in there. My story could be in there because we wouldn't be like the worst ones because there's worse ones than even my family and your family. Okay, the story of brokenness is in there. And the summary, the summaries of our sinfulness are super clear. And maybe the clearest is in Romans chapter 3 where in Romans, the Apostle Paul is trying to explain the gospel for us. And he takes the first three chapters to kind of lay out what this brokenness looks like for the life of people who know nothing about God, for those people who think they know a lot about God, and then for just the general world. Brokenness, sin is everywhere. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, kind of summarizing it, and there's a number of verses here, but just listen to these. Listen to this description. Verse 10 says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and that the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see what Paul is saying there? This is Paul's summary of three chapters of laying out, this is actually what, this is what people don't know how to put into words is happening in the world here. This is the brokenness that we see. The brokenness that When we look into the mirror, sinfulness just shows itself. And Paul says, what that should do is, all of us should stand there with our mouths stopped. We should be closed. We should be honest with ourselves. Now, thankfully, this is not the end of the story, okay? We're not left here. We're not left to wonder what is going on. But what this does is it levels the playing field for all of us. It levels the playing field because it all places us under that same condemnation, that same place of sinfulness, whether it is a monk in a monastery, a pastor standing on the stage, or a child in Sunday school, we are all under the same guilt. And what we need is an intervention. And God has been working from Genesis on this intervention. When Adam and Eve sin, in Genesis 3.15 actually, God makes a promise. He says, I am coming to resolve this issue of sin. I will come. You can't do it. None of you can do it. None of us can do it. God says, I will do it. And he's promised to come and solve the problem of sin. And so here now as we come to Mark 15, this is actually the culmination, the pinnacle of all that God has been doing through history. We're coming to the narrative now where God is doing the most important thing in the history of our world. This is the key moment. And so all of us, we've spent the end of Mark, okay, 40 plus weeks, we're almost there, okay? But we have been building, even as a church, over the last year to this very moment, And God has been building over thousands of years to this very moment. 
His promise of redemption, of solving the problem of sin, is culminating in Jesus on the cross. And this is what makes it good news. That's why the gospel is good news, because God is actually the one who is doing something. And so we begin here by seeing Jesus again trying to help the disciples reimagine what Messiah was for them. Okay, so he begins by helping them reimagine what is the Messiah because for the religious leaders and even for the disciples, their picture of Messiah was someone who was going to just come in and, you know, get business done, right? Push everybody over. I'm the Messiah. I'm coming through and just be the one to accomplish it with power, with strength, with political might, kick the Romans out. It's tempting to just get something done sounds really good for many of us. I know I, I had a, like a little slight experience once when I was in Africa. We lived there for a number of years. And uh, one time we gave a local politician uh, a ride to the city. Okay, so this was like a five-hour trip. And so he came in, hopped into my Toyota Land Cruiser, hopped in the front seat. And what he did is he normally would have this sash that he would wear, you know, as a public official. And so he took this sash, took it off, and draped it on the front of the truck. This was like, this was the sign, government official coming through, okay? So he drapes this sash on the front of the truck, and then we're just flying through military checkpoints, you know, at a, at a, a ferry. He finds a way to kind of finagle us into like the front of the line, and rather than waiting for hours, he just like, the sash, that's, that's all he needs, right? The sash is doing it. And we get right to the front. That's the fastest trip to the city that we ever took. The sash feels good, doesn't it? It's great to have power. It's great to be able to, like, do things, make it happen. And so here in our text, and for, like, multiple texts, the disciples have been kind of, like, asking Jesus, like, if you're the Messiah and we believe you are, like, Jesus, where's your sash, man? Lay it out on the dash. Use your power. Let's get this thing done. Why do we have to go through suffering and hardship? You've got the power. You're the Messiah. We believe you. Do this thing. And Jesus, over and over again, has to reorientate them, help them to reimagine who he really is. And so Mark has been laid out really in a in a clear pattern to help us see what Jesus is doing. In the first eight chapters, it was all Jesus, all power, miracles, going from place to place. Everything was good. It was kind of like rising in a crescendo. And then chapters 8, 9, and 10 specifically, Jesus is trying to clarify for the disciples who he is. And in 11 through 16 is all straight to the cross and suffering. And Jesus has been warning them, this is the Messiah that I am. Here's what I'm like. And he said this, in Mark 10, remember these verses? Mark 10, verses 32 to 34, he says, And they were on the road going to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was, hap what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. 
Jesus has been warning them, here's what's coming, boys. Here's what's coming, girls. Your Messiah, do you have a place for a suffering Messiah on the cross? The first time he does this in Mark 8, Peter is like, Jesus, don't talk that way. Don't say those kinds of things. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. When you talk like this, when you, when you tell me to turn away from the road that God has for me, you're doing actually the bidding of Satan. You're doing his work. And so Jesus has been begging, teaching, showing, trying to get them to see who this Messiah really was. The question then for us as people on the other side of this narrative is, what do we have to reimagine about Jesus? What have we possibly believed in or thought was the way of Jesus and it's not really that? It's maybe tradition. It's maybe things that we're comfortable about Jesus that we really like. Maybe they're things that we hope Jesus will do for us, but they actually have no basis in his story or in who he's revealed himself to be. So part of what we have done with looking at Mark so slowly and so deeply was to just ponder for, for a long, long time Jesus and to learn from him as he says we should be doing so that not only the disciples have a reimagination, but we as well, as we see him, as we interact with his story and the narrative, are changed and become more and more like him. And so, with this idea of reimagination, Jesus is brought before the soldiers. Look at Mark 15, verse 16, the verses that we just heard read. Verse 16 says this, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called him together, the whole battalion. And they clothed him in purple, in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking him on his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak, and put on his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And so it begins that Jesus then is brought before the Roman soldiers. He has been convicted in chapter 14 by the religious leaders, and now he is convicted by Pilate, and Pilate sends him away to be beaten and mocked by the soldiers. Last week in our passage in verse 15 of chapter 15, it, it said that he had been scourged. So Jesus had first been scourged before being sent to the soldiers. And so a scourging was something that often happened. It, it was essentially pre-killing people. They would take the convict and they would tie him up to a post and they had a short whip that had pieces of bone or pieces of metal on the end of it, and they would lash their back. And every time they did that, chunks of skin and flesh would be torn away to the point where the whole back was basically opened up. And this would actually often kill a lot of people before they were even crucified to a cross. 
And so Jesus is taken from having been scourged and he is brought before what is recorded here in Mark's gospel as a battalion of soldiers, which is up to 600 soldiers. So we're not talking just like two or three people. We're talking 600 soldiers who the job of a soldier is to be disciplined and to follow orders, but they are just given Jesus and they're able to do whatever they want with him. And so what do they do? The battalion, it says that they clothed him in purple, a sign of mockery, you know, of kings being wrapped in purple. They put a crown on his head and they beat it onto his head. They salute him as king of the Jews. They spit on him. And then again in mockery, it says, they knelt before him in fake reverence to him being the king. And Ironically, in their mockery and in their jest and in their torture, they are pronouncing him king, who he rightfully is. But they have no space for him and they have no idea what he's about and so they just injure him. And the reimagined Messiah for the disciples is just being blown up right in front of their eyes. They have no place for a suffering Jesus. They have no understanding of what, how could God do something good in this moment that looks like, doesn't it look like a moment of loss? Doesn't it look like a moment that's not going to be recovered in any way? It's easy for us because we're on this side of the story, but the story, when you look at it, when you take it moment by moment, the story looks like loss. The story looks like brokenness. The story looks like Jesus is on the losing end of it. But... He stays and he endures. So when we come to Mark 15, verse 21, by this point, Jesus is probably an unrecognizable, bloody mess. It would be something that we would shelter our children from, and it would probably traumatize us in our modern world. It's what gave Mel Gibson's movie an R rating, okay? Just beaten to a pulp. And here it gives us small details then of what transpired. Look at verse 21. It says this, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. Mark just puts in little details there that Simon the Cyrene was there to celebrate Passover, and Jesus, because of his lack of energy, is probably falling over, not able to carry a portion of the cross, the cross beam that he would have most likely had tied to his arms. He's falling over, and so they grab Simon to take it and to help Jesus along. And Mark puts in there that, you know, this is someone who is known to the people who are reading this, most likely because these believers had kept on in the faith, and they may have even gone to Rome. In Romans chapter 16, Paul thanks someone who's named Rufus, which scholars think is probably the same Rufus that we have listed here. Just kind of puts it in historical perspective, the Gospel of Mark and Romans. Real people experiencing the death of Jesus, real believers still in the first century following Jesus as the church is growing. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Often there were older women there who were allowed to, as a, 
as a point of mercy to those who were about to be crucified, would give them this drink, would give them this myrrh. And it was almost a little bit of a sedative, right? It would take some of the pain away. It would kind of dull them a little bit. And Jesus, wanting to be totally clear with what he's doing, wanting to be firm in his resolution of the choices he's making, refuses to take it. Doesn't take it so that he is experiencing the fullness of what is going on. Verse 24 Mark says, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Mark gives very few details other than saying they crucified him. Mark knows that he's writing Roman believers who are well acquainted with the cross who had seen it done in different portions, probably of the cities that they lived in. And so he didn't describe what happened, but essentially what happened is Jesus is laid down and through his wrists or his forearms is a large spike hammered into the wood. And then as he's laying there with both arms nailed down, they would place his feet together like this and probably with a single spike would hammer both his legs straight to the post. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, says that crucifixion was the most wretched of all ways to die. Beaten, scourged, mocked, and now spiked and nailed to a wooden cross hung to to gasp for air to live as long as a man could last. And the human response, the response that the disciples have, and the response that we have is, this should not be so. This is not how it should be working. Where is our victorious Messiah? We love the stories where the, the bully or the bad guy kind of gets it, you know? He's the one who gets his nose shoved in it. We love the story of, you know, David and Goliath because Goliath is this bully and he's taunting and he's raging. Then David comes and slings him and he's dead. Boom, he's down. That's the story we love. The modern day version is, you know, Back to the Future or something, okay? Nobody watches that movie anymore, evidently. Tried to show it to my kids once. They were like, this is the dumbest movie ever. Back to the Future, okay, where you've got like Biff and Marty McFly. Biff's just a bully picking on Marty McFly. And the, the kind of the crux of the movie is where Marty finally gets the strength to slug Biff and Biff's out. And everybody in the theater is like, rah. That's what we've been waiting for. So we look at the cross here and we say, Jesus, you're king, you're Messiah. We believe it. Why are you dying? Why are you letting this happen? But Jesus stays. Jesus stays on the cross. He doesn't shrink away. This isn't cosmic, you know, deified child abuse. This isn't like accidental state terrorism that's happening. This is Jesus willingly going to the cross for you and I. There is no question. John makes it clear in his gospel. John says this in John 10 verse 18. These verses are really important. Jesus says this, 
He says, no one takes it from me. He's talking about his own life. Nobody takes it from me. Rome doesn't take it from me. People don't take it from me. Nobody takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from the Father. Nobody is forcing Jesus to do this. No state is doing it. He is choosing to stay on the cross, to stay through this pain. And that is the good news, that Jesus actually stays for our sins. The innocent man makes the exchange for the, those of us who are not innocent. And so Jesus himself stays on the cross and is crucified. And in that moment, we see here that he is fully rejected by the religious leaders. We've been seeing this the whole time, that they have been rejecting what Jesus has been about. They've been continually trying to fight against him. But here we see it in its totality. Look at verse 26. It says this, And the inscription on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews, written by Pilate. In verse 27, he says, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes, they mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, Come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And here's the summary. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The religious leaders reviled him. And listen, it's actually really easy to, to become calloused to the pain and to the plight of others. It's really easy to get there. We think, we, we read this narrative and we think, man, how could these guys get so callous and so blinded? But it's really simple for all of us to get there. We see people on the streets still. We see people begging for money. We see people in dire situations on the news around us. If you ever travel to countries where there's like massive poverty, there's people begging all around you, it does not take long to be able to walk by those people and not even see them. Either we think the problem's too big, or we think they've made their own choices, or I'm just here for a week and I'm gone. Whatever it is, you become callous to what's happening. And here they see Jesus, this person, just on a human level that they have been interacting with over weeks and months. And they can look at this man who's dying on this cross. And what do they do? They revile him. They mock him. The language that's actually being used here is language that's actually used in the story of David and Goliath, where Goliath is taunting the nation of Israel. That's the language that is being used here for what they're doing. They are taunting Jesus. He's hung up there. He's got nothing else he can do. They're just taunting him and making fun of him. Their rejection is total and complete. Rather than thinking about what is God actually doing here, rather than thinking about the possibility that God could be Doing something through Jesus, they are blinded by their rejection. Even though in Psalm 22, Psalm 22 basically describes what is happening here. And they would have that memorized. They would know it, but they have no place for it. Psalm 22, verses 
6 and 8 and 16 through 18 says this, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat at me. And they've divided my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. This is actually happening in real time to Jesus. And the religious leaders can't even make the connection. The rejection is complete. So a reimagined Messiah, but one who stays, even when it's most difficult and painful. And he is finally rejected by the religious leaders. But finally, and we'll end our time with this, this is an act of a Messiah who loves. And that's what this story is really about. Is it a story about how God's anger is towards sin? Is it a story about how God loves sinners? Is it a story about both those things? We're going to partially answer those questions actually next week. That's why I said this, this week is part one. Next week is part two. But what we know is that when we look to the later letters in the New Testament, when the believers are really analyzing and thinking and trying to grapple with what the cross is, the author's point this to an act of love. Because what they're seeing when they're in the midst of it, they're just confused by it. They just don't know, they have no place for what's happening. They don't totally know what God is doing. But the letters later in the epistles and in the pastoral letters make clear for us what God was doing. So in 1 John Chapter 4, verse 7, John is explaining what the cross is and how it's based in love. And I just want to read some verses here to close our time. John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So John is trying to get us to understand God is all about love. That's what he is working from. That is his position. That's where he's going. So John goes on and he says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So John's saying, here's how we saw God's love working out in our midst. It's that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Next week we'll talk more about what that propitiation means. But John is saying here, firstly, you want to understand the cross. Do you want to know what God is showing in the cross? The primary thing that he is showing is his love towards sinners. God's love towards us. Real love is substitutionary sacrifice. It's doing something for someone else. And that's what we're seeing actually in the work of the cross. I can remember um, when our kids were younger, a lot of you are in this position, 
there were uh, seasons of sickness, okay? And I know you're, probably some of you are in that season right now. There would be, you know, weeks where it would just, you know, we're a family of five, so it would go sometimes from one to the next over like a five-week period, and by then, the first one was back in it, you know? It was like back, right back into the rough house of sickness, and just over, and there would be weeks and weeks of sickness. And I remember one time, I might be getting the details wrong, Liz can correct me later, but there was one time where it was like this night of terror almost, okay, where... I think almost all five of us were sick at once. It wasn't normally like that. You know, it was usually spread out over weeks. But this was, everything was culminating in one night. And I just remember, I was like laying in bed as one of the kids was just regularly sick, if you know what I'm saying. Okay, I'm there, and I'm like with the brag and a bucket and you know, like sleeping for five minutes and then back to like heaving and sickness. And I'm like, I'm staying in it, right? I'm there. I'm the dad. I'm hanging in there. And it was like, we got through it, but it was like, that was like a high point for me as a dad. I mean, that kind of stuff gets you cards at, you know, Father's Day, gets you a tie, either a cardboard one or a real one. Okay, I don't know, whatever you get. But this like, you know, MVP kind of stuff for for dad. But essentially, like, I'm just doing for my kid what most loving parents would do for their kids. In their moment of weakness and in their moment of brokenness, you're there to, to love and, and provide the care that they need. The Bible says, if you love your brother or if you love someone who loves you, like, where's the surprise in that? It says that's natural. That's what most people do. They love those who love them. The Bible says the one who will sacrifice himself, substitutionary love for the one who hates him, that is an act of God. And when we look at the cross, what Jesus is solving is not just a virus flu. He's not just staying so that we can you know, have some relief from something that's like minor. Jesus is staying for something as deep as sin in our lives, which is an act of an enemy towards God over and over and over again. And Jesus, though people are reviling him and they're mocking him, he stays. Not only for us who are so thankful for his grace, but he's staying for the very people who would wag their heads at him. He's staying for the people who would push him away. And it's the beauty of the grace of the cross that we put our trust in what Jesus has done for us because none of us loved him back when we should have, but he was unrelenting in his love towards us on the cross. 